But you, O man of God, you, man of God, isn't that a wonderful designation for someone to be viewed as a man of God? That's how the Apostle Paul begins this section of 1 Timothy, at which we look tonight, verse 11 of chapter 6. But you, O man of God. And that suggests a contrast to what he has been discussing or writing about in the immediately preceding verses, and it is a contrast because Paul, as we studied last time in looking at 1 Timothy, had written concerning those who desire to be rich, those who fall into temptation as a result of that desire, and a snare, a trap, if you will, and into many foolish and harmful lusts which as Paul describes it, will drown men in destruction and perdition. Why, Paul? For the love of money, verse 10, as we looked at it last time, is the root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from their faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. It's quite likely that there were those false teachers at Ephesus where Timothy was working at this time, when Paul penned this epistle, who were in it for what they could get out of it. They were false teachers. They were those who would lead precious souls astray, but by way of contrast, Timothy was a study in contrast indeed. And Paul compliments him highly in verse 11 as we begin our study tonight when he says to him or writes, but you, O man of God. Oh, that's an interjection, the omega there. Oh, an interjection that indicates greater emotion. And it's interesting that when he refers to him as a man of God, he's not excluding you women from being men of God in this sense. You see, the word he uses here for man is the word for mankind, the word that would include men and women. And so really what he is saying here is not the word for just the male of the species, but the word that would include women. In other words, people of God. You are a person of God, he is saying to Timothy. And that's something which we should all strive to always be, people of God, a person of God, whether a Christian man or a Christian woman, whether a gospel preacher or, or someone who is not a gospel preacher. We should be characterized as people of God. Timothy was a person of God. He was a person of God by creation because obviously we're all created in the image of God. And so whether we are obedient to God or not, we're still persons of God in that sense in that we are God's creation, whether mankind for the most part recognizes or gives credit to the God of heaven for his being created in the image of God. But most especially, Timothy and all who are Christians here tonight are persons of God by recreation. Persons of God by being recreated by being spiritually born, by being born again, by being purchased by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And as purchased by the blood of Christ and persons of God who've been purchased by that blood, we're a part of the church. Because if we are persons of God, if we've been purchased, then we have to be in the church. Because all those who are purchased by God are added to his church. In Acts twenty twenty eight. When Paul addressed the Ephesian elders there at Miletus, he said, Take heed to yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Spirit has made you 
overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. To shepherd the church of God, the persons of God. That is, those who've been called out from the world. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 reminds us that we are not our own because we've been bought with a price. And then the admonition there in the latter part of that text is, Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. We are God's creation. In the physical sense, obviously, created in His image, but because of the fact that we have a soul, but we're recreated when we come to God through obedience to his gospel. Knowing you were not redeemed, Peter writes to the Christians to whom he penned that first epistle, knowing you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. O people of God, how blessed indeed we are to be persons of God, to be men and women of God. It's something that we should constantly strive to be worthy of being called. And that's what Timothy was in Paul's eyes, a man of God, a person of God. And by way of the contrast to the false teachers and others who were not doing as they should, teaching as they should, and living as they should, he says to this man of God, here's what you need to do, flee these things. Don't you be caught up in that quest for material things. Don't you get caught up in this world and in the love uh, of this world and the things of this world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eye and the pride of life. You flee. Don't flirt with, but flee those things. And that word flee is in that present active tense that means you just keep on fleeing. You just keep on running from those things. And here's what you need to run after righteousness. Flee these things and follow, some translations render it, the New King James says, pursue righteousness. Flee those things that are evil and follow or pursue those things that are right. But he has a list here. And the word pursue is also in that same present tense, so it means just keep on pursuing. Keep on running after certain things and keep on running away from other things. That should characterize the life of every child of God. There are things we will continue to run away from and there are things toward which we will always run or pursue. What are they? The first one is righteousness. And righteousness, as we have so often said, is simply right doing. In other words, you pursue doing and obeying the will of God. Pursue righteousness, he says. The second quality is godliness. Is there a distinction between godliness and righteousness? Well, to some extent, yes. Righteousness is obeying the will of God. Godliness is piety. Godliness is that devotion and loyalty to God, that deep devotion to God and that reverence and respect for God. And then the third quality he mentions is faith faithfulness, complete trust and loyalty to God and to Christ. And then he mentions love, and that's the agape form of love. It is that form of love that, that always acts in harmony with what is best for those who are the object of our love. It's the highest form of love, as we have often 
talked about it, and it is perhaps best summarized in the great chapter on love in 1 Corinthians 13, particularly at verses 4 through 7. Listen to it. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. Is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. You'll never find a better description of the agape love than in that great chapter on love, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And then he next mentions to pursue, keep on running after what? Patience. Actively pursue patience. That's constancy. Constancy under trial. No matter what happens, you are constant and you remain constant. You hold up under adversity. You hold up and remain steadfast in trial. And then he mentions gentleness. Gentleness. Sometimes you see it as meekness. But gentleness is, of course, pretty much self-explanatory, isn't it? Someone who is gentle is not given to violent reaction. He's not going to fly off the handle at a moment's notice. He's going to be one who promotes peace. A gentle man. A gentle person. Perhaps it is seen as somewhat ironic that the very next thing Paul admonishes in the next verse, verse 12, after he mentions pursuing after gentleness, he then says fight. Fight the good fight of faith. And so is it possible for one to be gentle and one to be a fighter? Absolutely. Indeed, one must be when one is fighting the good fight of the faith One must do so with all of the qualities and more that could be named that have just been mentioned by Paul in his epistle to Timothy. Righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and yes, gentleness. A gentle soldier, if you will, of the cross. That's what all of us should be. And that word fight is the word from which we get our word agonize. And it indicates a very intense struggle. It's not a casual skirmish that we are involved in as Christians. We are in an intense struggle with Satan. And Paul understood that and Paul appreciated that and he wanted Timothy to fully understand. Keep on in the battle for truth. And as we said, the word suggests an intense struggle. It may have a military connotation here as in one who is truly a soldier. Sometimes the allusion is to the athletic games. But in this context, it seems likely that Paul has in mind a military connotation. Be a good soldier. Keep fighting. And he mentions that to, in his epistles to Timothy, the first and second epistles. Uh, that idea of soldiering is mentioned. In 2 Timothy 2, for example, in verse 3, you therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And so since he uses the military analogy there, it's quite likely that he has that same thing in mind here in the first epistle when he says, fight as a good soldier, but a gentle soldier. With gentleness, the 
spite of the faith. Is there any point in time where he should not mince words when dealing with false teachers? Well, was there ever a time when the Lord did not mince words when he dealt with false teachers? Oh, yes, time and again. Time and again, he did not mince words and he confronted the false teachers of his day. Was he unloving in doing so? No. No. Not at all. In fact, Jesus was the most meek of all who have ever walked the earth. Come unto me, all you who are labor and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek or gentle and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. But he is also the lion of the tribe of Judah, as he's referred to in Scripture as well as the Lamb of God. It was he who cleansed the temple on two different occasions, wasn't it, and drove out the money changers. Righteous indignation, and yet a promoter of peace, perfect peace. My peace, he said to his apostles on one occasion, I leave with you. Not as the world gives, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. We're to be soldiers, fighting the good fight of faith. The New King James does not include the faith here, but some translations, as the American Standard and others say, Fight the good fight of the faith. And the definite article is there in the original. And I think without significant, not without significance. Fight the good fight of the faith. The fight of the faith. What's the significance of that? There is but one fight and there is but one faith. The fight is over the faith and for the faith and against those who would compromise or change the faith. And that is the system of faith. Christianity, the entire body of doctrine. That's the fight in which we are engaged. To keep the gospel pure, to defend it, and to propagate it in this community and beyond. By our example and by our teaching. And in so doing, we will do what? Lay hold, he says next, on eternal life. Timothy, I want you as a person of God to fight the good fight of the faith, and your ultimate goal is to do what? Your ultimate goal, my ultimate goal, your ultimate goal, if you're a child of God, should be what? To lay hold on eternal life. In other words, make it one's own. When this life is over, make sure that you have lived in such a way as to be able to then lay hold on eternal life. And what does that admonition clearly show? Well, it clearly shows, first of all, that there's activity that's necessary on man's part in order for eternal life to be obtained. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that we live in what? In hope of eternal life, Titus 1 and verse 2. 1 John 2.25 says, This is the promise which He promised us, eternal life. Eternal life is ours today only in what? In hope or in promise. But that nonetheless gives us great comfort because we know that if we continue to fight the good fight of the faith, we will ultimately lay hold in reality on that eternal life. And that's the goal toward which we strive. That's the goal that we keep in our minds at all times, is that eternal life. But it suggests that we've got to do something in order to lay hold on it. And it also implies, does it not, that if I am to do something to lay hold on eternal life, ultimately as my reality, 
then is it possible that I may not do those things that are necessary to lay hold on eternal life and therefore forfeit eternal life? Well, yes. And that's abundantly taught in Scripture, isn't it? That is clearly taught in Scripture. I was talking with a fellow the other day who calls me periodically from somewhere up in Illinois. We first came to know this gentleman back in the days when I was working with GBN and uh, calls himself the monkey man. <laughs> and uh, he'll call every now and then and say, this is monkey man, just call and see how you're doing. He always loved to listen to Brother James Watkins and he'd watch us on GBN. But he was telling me just the other day, he called and was telling me he was talking to somebody and this, this man and I've talked to him and I've talked to him and I've talked to him because he is not a New Testament Christian. But when you talk to this man, he can teach and quote perhaps more salient points about Scripture than many members of the church can. And I keep telling him, you need to do, you need to do what you're telling others to do. Now, I told him that again just the other day. I do not know what stands between him and obeying the gospel as much as we have talked. But he'll bring up a point, just like he did the other day. He said, I was talking with somebody, and he said, uh, he was talking about once saved, always saved. And I was telling him, no, that's not taught in the Bible. And the fellow he was talking with said, well, what about the passage that says, no one can snatch, snatch me out of the Father's hand? John 10, 27 through 29. And monkey man said, here's what I told him. Well, no, nobody can snatch you out of the Father's hand, but you can remove yourself from the Father's hand. Well, I've preached that many times. <laughs> Monkey man was right again. <laughs> I just need to get him to do <laughs> what he's telling others to do. But he was right on target with what he was telling that individual. So when Paul says, lay hold on eternal life, does that not clearly imply that it's possible not to lay hold on it? And that I've got to do something in order to secure eternal life? And what is that? Continue to follow the teaching of Christ. Continue to fight the good fight of the faith. And notice what he says then beyond that in verse 12. To which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In other words, you've been called to lay hold on eternal life. But how were you called to lay hold on eternal life? If you're a Christian tonight, how were you called to lay hold ultimately on eternal life? How many times have we said it? By the gospel, right? Second Thessalonians 2, verse 14, to which he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have been called by the gospel. And that calling is a call to lay hold ultimately on eternal life and to live in such a way as to do it. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1 gives a similar admonition. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. That's a reference to being called by the gospel. And when we answer that call by believing, repenting, confessing, and being baptized, then we are the called out. The word church means what? Called out. Those who've been called out. What is it that calls us out of the world? The gospel calls us out of the world. And a part of that process by which we are called out of the world is what? 
confession. The good confession that is mentioned here in verse 12. To which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I believe that good confession was the confession that Timothy obviously made that he believed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And when was it likely that he made that? It's generally believed to have been a confession that he made prior to his baptism. At the time that he obeyed the gospel, he made that good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Paul comes back to that confession in the next verse when he says, I urge you, and that word urge doesn't mean you've got a real option here. It's a charge. It's the word that is translated charge back in chapter 1, verse 3, and also in chapter 18 of verse 1 where he says, I charge you. So it's a, it's a command. I charge you or I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things. And then he says, and before Christ Jesus who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate. Jesus confessed that he was the Christ, the Son of the living God. When did he do that? Well, Paul says he did it before Pilate. Where do we find that? If we go back to John chapter 18, and as he stood before Pilate, as he was being tried there, Pilate entered the praetorium, verse 33 of John 18, again called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Are you speaking for yourself about this, or did others tell you this concerning me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priest have delivered you to me. What have you done? That's when Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And so, it is generally thought that that's the very time to which Paul makes reference here, when Jesus affirmed clearly that he was the king over his spiritual kingdom, therefore the Christ, the Son of the living God. But it's also pointed out that the word before there, before Pontius Pilate, can also mean, the word can also mean, in the time of someone. So, if it means in the time of Pilate when he was governor, there were many times when Jesus clearly affirmed that he was the Christ, the Son of God. And so Jesus confessed that he is the Christ, the Son of God. And that's the same confession that not only Timothy made, but it's the same confession that we ask any candidate who comes forward wishing to become a child of God to make. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. But the charge that he makes in the sight of God, he says, is verse 14, that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless, until our Lord Jesus Christ's appearing. Keep this commandment. What commandment? Here it has to include the entire body of, of gospel truth that has been committed to him. He's not speaking of a specific commandment. He's told him in verse 12, fight the good fight of the faith, lay hold on eternal life. And so the commandment would be inclusive of everything concerning the gospel. 
And notice this, that you keep this commandment without spot, that you guard it, keep it, without spot, blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ appearing. The gospel itself is without spot. The gospel itself is perfect. It is blameless. There's nothing you can say against the gospel of Christ. Oh, there have been those who have said plenty against it. But it cannot be challenged successfully. The gospel is perfect. And so keep that commandment. Protect that blameless, spotless gospel. How long, Timothy? Until our Lord Jesus Christ appearing. In other words, he simply uses that expression to express to Timothy and to all Christians for all time, live in anticipation of the Lord's appearing at all times because you do not know when that will occur. Despite all of those who through the years have claimed to know and have predicted and failed and predicted and failed, we do not have that information. When will it happen? Verse 15 tells us. Here's when he'll come again. He'll be manifest in his own, which he will manifest in his own time. That's when he'll come again. When God believes and knows that it's the right time. And God knows. In his own time means at the right time. God in his infinite wisdom will decide when Christ should return. When it is exactly the time, according to the God of heaven, for his son to return. He who is the blessed and only potentate, that is, one who has authority. A potentate is one who has power, one who has authority. But here it is the only potentate. God is the exclusive sovereign over all creation. King of kings and Lord of lords. That's an attribution that is given to God the Father, but it's also an attribution that is given to Jesus Christ, the Son. When you look at Revelation 19, verse 16, speaking of the Christ, the writer says, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. That's a clear reference to Christ. And since it is applied to God the Father and to Christ the Son, it clearly shows that Christ is Deity, Christ is a member of the Godhead. And finally, as we conclude tonight, verse 16, he further describes this only potentate, King of kings and Lord of lords, as the one who alone, who alone has immortality. That is, he is not liable to death. He's not subject to death. Never has been, never will be. He has inherent immortality. You and I have immortality. But our immortality is decreed from God, derived from God. God has given us that immortal soul. No one gave God his immortality. He is inherently immortal. Not only that, but he dwells in unapproachable Light. The psalmist in Psalm 104 and verse 2 says he covers himself with light as a garment. God is 
light. And then he says, whom no man has seen or can see. Oh, there have been temporary manifestations of God that have been seen by men, temporary forms that God has assumed at times, but no one has ever seen the essence of God, the complete essence of God. To him be honor and everlasting power. Amen. Indeed, God is worthy. God is worthy of all the honor that we can possibly muster in order to give to him. All the praise that we can possibly muster. And all the obedience that we can possibly give to him. And when we've done all of that and given all that we can, as Jesus once declared, we must still view ourselves as unprofitable servants. But thanks be to God, we don't have to be sinless in order to be acceptable to God. Just obedient. And reverence Him and respect Him and obey Him as one who is worthy of all honor, everlasting power, inherently immortal, dwelling in unapproachable light. And if we fight the good fight of the faith and determine ultimately to lay hold on eternal life when this life is over, then it's when we'll see him as he is, Christ as he is, and will, as John writes in his first epistle, be like him. What a goal. What an aspiration. What a hope. What a promise. And it can be yours tonight if you're not already pursuing after those qualities about which we've spoken tonight determined to lay hold on eternal life if you haven't begun that quest because you're not a Christian. Believe with all of your heart in Jesus as the Christ. Be willing to confess him following your repentance from sin and submit to that watery burial where the blood of Christ will be applied so that you can rise as a person of God. Oh, person of God will be an appropriate appellation for you if you'll submit to his will and determine thereafter to flee, not flirt with, but flee unrighteousness and follow after righteousness, fighting the good fight of faith. If you haven't continued that fight after becoming a Christian, need to come home to your first love. We plead with you to do that just now as we stand to sing to encourage you.